I'm Billy. I'm Drew. This is Pilot Club. We're recording on Tuesday night this week. That's right. That's right. Bit a little a, early, a little early, but we're just in time. Bit of a shift in, uh, yeah. Yeah, for the latest uh, mic drop moment from yep. Michael Mann, mm. Tokyo Vice. Talk us through it. Yeah, so Tokyo Vice is the latest high-profile series um, from HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's streaming on, in Australia on uh, Paramount+. Plus. And it's a crime drama. It obviously famously takes the title from... Miami Man's Miami Man's Michael Man. <laughs> do we need to do, do, do we need to restart? No, no, no. Let's let's press on. Let's press on. Because remember, the, with restarting has become a bit of a joke with us. Because remember, in our early days of podcasting, I clicked the restart button sixteen minutes in. Like you, you were just getting into your flow. You were you were eloquent. You're articulate. And I was like, I'm not happy with me. I'm not happy with where I'm at during this. There's no pressing the dumb no, button right no, now. No. We're in. We're in, baby. I think I think like um like Miami man, that's that's kind of that's what it is, right? That's him. Well, it should be. It yeah. should be. I mean, he's all about that neon. He is. He's all about that neon. Um Yeah, so it comes famously it comes from Michael Mann and it's sort of a spiritual sequel in some respects to uh, Miami Vice, the famous critically acclaimed nineteen eighties show, which you actually have covered as an archive You've corner. Done for an choice. archive corner, exactly. Um so this one is obviously set in, in Japan. Uh it's a crime drama, so it's something of a procedural. Mm-hmm. Um both journalistic and uh, forensic, and it is in some it, ways. It is very procedural, isn't it? Like just mm. not to foreshadow too much of the plot that you're going to summarise. But there's a moment where the main character um, is initiated into a new newspaper workplace, and they mm. say mostly your stories are when, where, and who. Yeah. And he says, "What about why?" And they're like, "Only oh, if you have time." Only if you have time. <laughs> so it's very, it is very procedural. Yeah. The when sometimes to a fault, I think. But let let me know what you think. First. Yeah. So. Uh, it premiered originally in April, but for whatever reason, um, some bizarre, obviously, license mm. wrangling. It's only arriving in Australia uh, today. Um, it, the two co-stars are Ansel Elgort, um, famous for various Disney adaptations. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a definitely a, a change in pace for him. And Ken Watanabe. Yep. And the premise is effectively tracing um, a journalist, an American journalist called Jake Adelstein, uh, who's relocated to Tokyo and is attempting to break into the journalism industry. Mm. This is also something of a period piece because this opens in the late 1990s, which also, I don't know whether it's no, coincidentally or not coincidentally, corresponds to, I guess, Michael Mann's most fertile yep. cinematic output. Yep. Um, in particular, you know, his classics, um, Miami Vice, Collateral. Heat. And heat, obviously. So wait, is it set in the late nineties or late noughties? This this is set in the late nineties. Late nineties, nineteen ninety nine. Okay, right. Yeah. So heat. Give me all you got. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, our first um, episode uh, traces uh, Jake's attempts to join the staff mm. of Tokyo's most famous and prestigious newspaper, mm. uh, which we learn has a readership of twelve million people. Mm. Um, pretty extraordinary. In order to do this, he needs to pass a very demanding written exam in Japanese. Mm. Um, so once he, well, there's uh, some spoilers here, but I we think, certainly I think, won't I think, spoil the end. Well, that said, I think to give a, se- a sense of the pilot, the shape of the pilot, we have to kind of say what happens, yeah, right? Like yeah. there's spoilers. Like yeah, it's, so I think this is probably, you probably garner this from the trailer, that he does pass and he does yep. get admitted as uh, this newspaper's and mm. probably Tokyo's first mm. um, American journalist um, operating in that system. So eventually he's taken under the wing of a detective in Tokyo's Vice Squad mm. and initiated into the, the bizarre rituals of uh, Tokyo's underworld. Mm. So I think this has all the hallmarks of, you know, uh, Michael Mann at his best in some respects. And it's, mm. it's clearly within his wheel, wheelhouse. So the descent narrative through this neon-soaked uh, megalopolis, which is Tokyo. Megalop- megalopolis was good. <laughs> <laughs> also... Um, this um, commitment to the, the bizarre rituals of men who are so committed mm. to their professions and their practices and mm. their, their fastidiousness is in some ways exemplified by, mm. by that Japanese perfectionism mm. in some respects. It, it, I mean, it, has, it almost has the austerity at times of a film like Thief. Yes. Don't you think like the pure, pure procedural craft, yes. focus on craft. Yes, yeah. and focus on, on characters as well who are... Mm absolutely monomaniacal mm. in their in their commitment mm. to whatever whatever goal they have to pursue mm. so jake adelstein we we learn um lives a very ascetic life in tokyo barely speaks to anyone spends all his time studying for this mm. for this exam 
and then once he's hired um, goes above and beyond in terms of the job so mm. in some ways he he represents um, someone who's I guess over identifying with the salary man ideology mm. of Tokyo yep. and um, one of one of the I guess interesting rituals and this is a this is a pilot full of interesting social rituals mm. and one of the most interesting is I guess the initiation into this workplace uh, whereby everyone gets drunk but there are still clear hierarchies even in this you know socially prescribed uh, you know um, merriment in some ways so and they, and they draw an analogy don't they so it ends with what appears to be a yakuza ceremony yes. or some kind of organized yeah. crime ceremony it's like a tea ceremony but a yeah but a sake ceremony yeah exactly and there's an analogy between the kind of Yakuza initiation and the, initi- the initiation into the newspaper. Yes. So there's that focus. So, look, you can see why it works for Michael Mann, right? Like, he's, he, he loves, he's fascinated with, he's fascinated with kind of the salaried worker, as you said. And he's mm. fascinated with people who have... Professional. Yeah, exactly. People who have a job to do and do it in a kind of completely procedural way. Um, I'm just kind of curious, because, I mean, it, it sounds from your, the way you're describing it that you kind of loved it. Well, look, because I, I, I would say I liked it. I didn't love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's funny because, you know, the Michael Mann style I associate above all with kind of coldness, with a kind of cold yes. detachment. I mean, you know, moments of pockets of humanity, but a kind of coldness. Um, a sheen. A sheen. And, and especially, as you said, like a, a kind of urban nocturnal kind of sheen. Mm. I felt at times like this was going for coldness, but for me was more like flatness. Like, I thought there were periods here where... I don't know what it was that didn't work for me because all the ingredients were there. I mean, maybe it was like... I, don't, I didn't find Ansel Lingort that charismatic at the centre mm. of it. Like, I found... I mean, Well, what, I don't know. Is he meant to be? He seems... He plays quite a blank, he, affectless character no, in some but, respects. No, but I also didn't find him affectless in a kind of... Interesting way. Well, in a kind of austere, alienated way either. Mm. I just found him kind of somewhere in between... I just found him kind of boring. Mm. And like, I mean, I thought the most boring scene, for example, was when he was flirting with that woman in the bar. So, like, I just, mm. in his, that, the most interpersonal scene I thought was it's, boring. So, it's quite a solipsistic actor. Y- yeah. And I just, you know, like, compare it to, say, Tom Cruise in Collateral or, you know, the Rob De Niro and Pacino characters in Heat. Like, I didn't, I didn't find him either present or alienated. Just kind of nothing. I felt nothing there. Like, there wasn't even a negative charisma. And I just, I don't know quite what it was. I mean, in t- also, I understand that, like, it's he's completely identified with the profession. That's a part of the story. But I also kind of found myself wondering you know, a little bit why, you know, an American guy had chosen to live in, had chosen to work at the best Japanese newspaper. Like, there, there was not mm. a big sense of why he was drawn to that. And I also felt like, I felt like the Michael Mann coldness was offset by what I felt was like a bit of a, a sense was a bit of a schlocky book. Like, I just... There were elements of like schlock to it that came the, through. The book is a non-fiction book. Yeah, but the but the book is also I was reading the book has also been criticised for kind of fictionalising right. things that happened and for kind of you know just embellishing. Like the book has been called into question in terms of its right. accuracy. And I, it just it's funny. I remember when when I used to work at a bookshop, um, and this came out like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. There was a kind of real market for a certain kind of schlocky, lowbrow, highbrow like travel fiction, basically, or travel mm. memoir, which was on the surface an incredible expose of a country, but at heart was a pretty mm. kind of... A pretty schlocky... And I thought this had elements of it, of well, that. It's a kind of gonzo journalism. It is. I was going to call it gonzo, but I thought the gonzo is almost too generous. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, like, it's like schlock. It's like exotic schlock. And so I just felt... I guess you saw that kind of austere professionalism there, and I, I like that. I think that's definitely a part of it. But for me, there was just this slightly... There's something off about that, which for me is maybe the reason it didn't work for me so much. Right. I, I, the character I wondered was just actually a bit of a douche at heart, I, I, and and that kind of came through, but didn't come through. Okay, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, I really liked the third act when it, it immersed us in Tokyo nightlife, but I, yeah, at times I felt it was more flat and cold. Like it reminded me a little bit of like Black Hat, like the most recent Michael Mann film, which I I really wanted to like, but at times. I now realise in retrospect almost felt more like television than cinema, mm. I thought, in its style. I, I know what you mean. I, I thought, I think, you know, emotionally this is a bit of a distantiating mm. text in some ways. But didn't you find just aesthetically, compositionally, this was really impressive? There was just some incredible, incredible sequences just visually. 
So, for example, you know, the mm. bird's eye view of the, the Shinjuku crossing uh, or Shibuya crossing, whichever one of that, the, the scene of the, the rigidity of all the students sitting there, the mm. exam, the lockstep of that. I mean, and, and maybe it's just that, I mean, maybe it's just that is now just the man style. Mm. And maybe that style... It's has a been, house style. It's a house style, but it's also become a style more generally. Like, I feel like a lot of cinema in the last 10 years in particular has, you know become almost like sub-man or has been influenced like films from like, like Drive to, you know, like all kinds of films I think are influenced by man. So maybe the surprise, the style just doesn't feel as surprising mm. as it did. I, I do feel like that his films also depend on just a kind of austerity and a kind of coldness and a kind of detachment, a kind of cold warmth, which I just, I just didn't feel was consistent here. And I felt that it's like, it's like, the pilot was really torn between Michael Mann's directorial style and the personal voice of the memoir. And at times, I felt like it was kind of neither one nor the other. I mean, I thought the two crime... There's two kind of crime scenes. I mean, you know, th- these are spoilers, but it's it's the nature of the podcast. Like, there's a scene where a body is discovered and a scene where someone sets themselves on fire. And both those scenes, I thought, were really amazing. Like, in both cases, you see the body in question in a very decontextualised way, in a very oblique way, and then only gradually do you realise what's happening. I thought that those moments were brilliant. But just, yeah, I guess, guess I felt it was somewhere between, like, a classic Michael Mann kind of vision and almost like a douchey mm. travel memoir. You, you say it's quite schlocky, but I thought this was actually very grounded in, in reality. And I thought I thought all the interesting cultural insights and just all the rites and rituals and, and the, just the, the slightly, the way that, Japan is this kind of hybrid, mm. you know, West and East in some ways and how that's inflected through the, the criminal justice system there mm. as well and the way so, those social yeah, hierarchies that, are embedded that, in, in that, reporting and in That stuff was in interesting. Forensics. Yeah, so that was, that, that was interesting. So it's almost like, yeah, so a lot of it is about the challenge of investigative reporting mm. in a country. And, and investigating. It, yeah, and investigating in a country where, you know, there are very strict hierarchies and very strict protocols. So, you know, there's a scene where... You know, the journalist is told by the... The Elgort character is told by another journalist, you know, it's not murder until the police say it's murder. So all that stuff I thought was interesting. Maybe it's just, you know, like the opening montage sequence with the karate and the nightclubs. I don't know. It just just felt like... It felt like Lost in Translation, but, like, that's, like, you know, 20 years ago. Like, it just... It felt like a version of Japan that was dated without being a period piece either. I mean, I, I like those opening scenes. Like, they had a... I, f- I feel like he almost, like, personified the bubble at this, in those opening scenes. Like, and there was, like, the kind of music, the dancing, the karate. Like, there's, there's some great montage sequences of him just, like, hyperactively acquiring information. Like, he yeah. looks into Japanese weather systems, the Japanese economy. All that stuff, I thought, captured the bubble. Like, him, he personified the bubble in a really interesting way. It's like Rob De Niro reading the book about medals yeah, at, the, at the bar. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what it was like. But I still thought there was just a kind of... There was something... And I can't put my finger on it. There was something hokey about the way in which it depicted Japan or something that just felt less surprising to me oh. or flatter. Um, okay. Yeah. I thought, I thought this was a, actually quite a brave pilot, given how mm. much of it is actually in Japanese. I would say probably 60% of this is in Japanese and mm. with subtitle, subtitled. Um, we have several major, almost every other major mm. character is, is Japanese. Um, you know, obviously Ken Watanabe, um, the lead detective, uh, Rinko Kikuchi, who plays um, one of the editors but guess, at the newspaper. I guess to me, after a while, that felt like a gimmick, like without any explanation of why this character had chosen to become a journalist in Japan. I just, I mean, I know it's a true story, mm. partly, apparently. I mean, the, the, fact of him being a ju- <laughs> the fact of him being a journalist is true. I just thought that felt gimmicky. Like, I thought it was such a... I understand that there's that aesthetic kind of affinity between man and Japan, but although it's not entirely man's series, right? Like, I mean, he's only an executive producer and has only directed one episode. I just thought in lieu of just any clear reason or any clear backstory... Mm. I'm not somebody who necessarily needs a lot of backstory, but in Don't lieu you think of, that was foreshadowed, though? That his backstory was going to be a, a plot point that they yeah. might return to and yeah. build out that character depth. For example, his interaction with the the, the girl in the conversation bar, mm. and um, he says, "Well, I can't, I can't go back. I can't fail." Mm. And she says a similar thing. So there's some sort of suggestion. But that- may- maybe then I just thought that he didn't have the charisma to carry that. Like it was, it was like a pilot where a character is in a completely incongruous situation, and that can often be the best way to start a series. 
But for whatever reason in this one, like I didn't buy it or I found it gimmicky or I just didn't believe it. And I think that in a way, the constant Japanese subtitles and the constant Japanese talk to, to me didn't feel brave so much as just a bit, yeah, like a bit hokey, like I, 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 without any kind of clear sense of it. it. It felt like a kind of book that when it came out, it would have been this incredibly incongruous thing, like, but maybe even it's like, you know, 12 or 13 years later or 20 years after the fact in a more globalised world, it feels less... I mean, you know, like we both know many people who've gone to work in Japan and, you know, it's it's a common mm. thing. So maybe maybe that sense of... the criminal underworld is so, that, so opaque, though. That was great. I mean, that stuff was great. I mean, the stuff... Mm. I, I thought that that slightly pulpy, lurid, slightly hokey quality really... Came, like, it really worked with that, that mm. Yakuza ceremony. Mm. That was really interesting. All the crime stuff, the actual depictions of crime were good. I just felt... Maybe it's just, like, the novelty of him being an American salaried worker in Japan... 20 years after the fact didn't feel as surprising to me or as alienating mm. i don't know yeah i, I mean I, I didn't dislike it i just i, I, thought, I just i yeah. didn't, didn't kind of i did something about it didn't co- convince me and like and yeah like i said a lot of it just felt to me like you know you think about the look of michael mann's films kind of things like those deep blues mm. those kind of endless nocturnal spaces mm. a lot of the spaces here were very sh- like felt shallow to me compared to that oh, i mean really? that's just that's nitpicky but it wow. didn't feel like I, th- I thought yeah i felt like this was you know a perfect extrapolation of his style in some ways mm. going back back to the 90s but also back to a to a city that feels like an extension a kind of cyberpunk extension of the the kind of most lurid neon soaked cities mm. in america in some ways, just an endless, an endless kind of sprawling, you know, boundaryless you know, urban space. I mean, I, yeah, I agree with that in principle, obviously. And I thought there were, you know, the end, the nightclub scenes at the end were good. I just, I felt like there was so much of it was, like, yeah, the best way I can put it is it just felt like it was torn between his voice, which wasn't entirely discernible here, his voice. It wasn't entirely discernible what the book's like, mm. but it felt different enough from man's style for it just not to come together for me. So look, I'm 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 an in. Like I'll I'll watch more. Um, I I also didn't think I have to say I didn't think it had an amazing narrative hook. Like I thought that apart from what we saw of the crime scene, I found it. And this is not about direction; it's about running. I found the way in which it brought his journalistic stuff together with the procedural stuff. I found it kind of clunky. I have to say, I I, I, did, I, 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 did, I didn't think yeah. it was for for what's meant to be the first instalment in a really addictive crime procedural. I, yeah. I found it. I found it kind of clunky. I agree, yeah. I agree. And I think that's that's the one... I think I was you know, mm. 100% loving this, mm. but the, the narrative hook, I agree, at the end, was a bit underwhelming. Mm. So I, I, I'm hoping that it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue exploring in a revelatory way mm. this criminal under, underworld and this, mm. this network and also the, the potential uneasy alliances between the police force and this criminal network this unusual kind of homeostasis between mm. the criminals and those they prosecute which is an interesting sort of heat like uh comparison. i agree and look sounds like you're a hard in i'm definitely and look it's, i'm definitely in and it's it's the kind of show that I, I could see like just in an episode or two i could be completely in yeah but just i could be a hundred percent in but just for whatever reason it didn't quite grab me as much mm. as i was hoping mm. you're not team elgort I'm, I'm not generally Team Elgort. Like, I don't... I don't do, you, do you find him... I, mean, I, I just watch West Side Story. Like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't... I'm normally... I don't... I'm not a, I'm not a generally big fan, but I thought he worked in this role, yeah. in, in a, with, given his limited range. Yep. Okay, yeah. Well, look, I'm, I'm hope, hoping I really come to love it. Okay, on to the second show this week. And I think, for me, this was the sleeper hit this week. This is no. a show that really defied my expectations in a way. I thought that... I thought it would be a kind of a... Maybe a bit of a ho-hum science fiction... Um, series and I ended up loving the pilot so mm. it's called Night Sky and it has a kind of disarmingly simple premise so I kind of take you through in real time how you know the opening scene um, it's set in the Midwest it's shot Illinois. In, shot in Illinois exactly and we start with a couple Irene and Franklin York who are played by Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simmons J.K. Simmons yeah Simmons I sometimes say Simmons Simmons yeah, J.K. Simmons yeah old couple um you know old like in their 70s living in a in an old kind of house we see them go out in the middle, you know, middle of the night, walk down to their local shed. Mm, they um, want to see the stars. They want to see the stars. Exactly, that's how they open it. They want to see the stars. Um, they go into the shed, go down a passageway in the shed, mm. enter a strange metallic device, mm. and are suddenly beam to a viewing platform, 
which appears to be looking out into another planet. Mm. And that's that's the premise of the series. Um, mm. This couple who have somehow discovered a portal to another planet mm. in their backyard, and they've lived with it for years. So what the portal looks like, it's like a pod on the surface of a planet. They can see out a huge window in this pod, the surface of the planet. They can see several moons in the sky, and they've kind of fitted it out with a few objects, mm. um, comfort objects. Um, it seems to have cause some accelerated aging for the sissy space set character you sense maybe going oh. to the pod because there's a medical is a medical element but apart from that they've lived with it for years and, and there's no mm. there's no function that they that they know of um mm. there's a door outside to the planet and they apparently at one point put some mice out mm. the mice died but beyond that they don't know its function so it's about how that resonates um you know and at the end of the episode and again it's a spoiler um the sissy space set character writes a letter to her husband and to the J.K. Simons character and basically saying she wants to leave um, the pod. She wants to go out on the planet. It's kind of a suicidal gesture in a way, but in a way it's not because she sees it as reuniting her with her, with her son, who we kind of infer has died. But yeah. apart from that, there's not a great deal of narrative. Um, there's not. And look, I, I loved it. So my, my kind of feeling about this was I, I kind of feel like any of us who grew up you know, in the 90s um, as children are acquainted with a particular version of the night sky, the, the Spielbergian night sky, mm. you know, Steven Spielberg. And I feel like, you know, in the 80s, the 80s has such a nostalgia for the 50s, and mm. there are so many fantasies of the Eisenhower era in yeah. the 80s, but often they constellate around the Midwest mm. and around the Midwest as a kind of cosmic supplement mm. to American culture. So you get these incredible cosmic visions of the Midwest and the Midwestern night sky. And you see it especially in Spielberg, um, so, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. But also Spielberg had an unrealised project called Night Skies, oh. which was so the same title as this pilot, basically, which was meant to follow Close Encounters but was never made. Right. But it's also there in you know movies like Field of Dreams. Mm. So it's almost like this series is kind of questioning what's happened to that cosmic Midwest, you know, 30 years on. Mm. So mm. What, what the couple have in their backyard is basically this cosmic supplement. They go in their shed mm. and they have this expansive vision of the universe. But they're beginning to question what it means. I mean, they've, they've been up there, what, 80 times or 800 times? 800 834 yeah. times. And nothing's happened. Nothing's yeah. changed. It's just there. And there's a bit where, um, a bit where uh, the J.K. Simons character says it's a heck of a view. And Sissy Spacek says it's more than that. And he says, is it? <laughs> so there's this question. It's like, yeah. and it, 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 so it felt to me like this series was kind of about the decline of like widescreen wonder. And it was like an elegy for the last generation that grew up with widescreen dreams. So, yeah. you know, before VHS, before DVD, before streaming, it's just, it's this, this wide, widescreen, just kind of way of looking at the world and this cinematic way of looking at the world that the couple still have, but... Their, their connection to it is precarious for a couple of reasons. Like, they're on the verge of being discovered. Mm. You know, their neighbour is watching them. There's a question of whether the sissy space set character needs to move, you know, whether they have to have in-home care or move to a nursing home, mm. in which case they won't any longer have access to it. And they're also considering just not going up anymore because they don't know what the function is. So I just I just found it really, this really moving, like, and even for people our age in our 30s, like, I feel like we have a memory of just widescreen, big screen experience being the norm. Mm. And especially especially that mystical Midwest. Like, I feel like that mystical Midwest, yeah, is a kind of cosmic... Mm. They called another sky, like a cosmic, vocabula yeah. a cosmic vocabulary in the 80s. So, I mean... I loved it for those reasons and for others. But, like, what did you, what did you think? I thought this was very interesting. A mm. very interesting pilot. Um, somewhat ambitious. Mm. Um, ambitious for the audience. Mm. And um, I think... This is obviously a, a character piece mm. um, masquerading as a science fiction mm. uh, story. And a, and a, generation, a generation piece, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think that's right. So you see at the beginning there's a framing device where we actually there's a sort of meet cute between the main characters mm. in the 1950s, I think we assume, or 19, mm. I assume 1950s, mm. um, with jukeboxes and um, you know, wearing... You know, classic 1950s attire. That, that, that seems like seeing the 50s from the perspective of the 80s. Yeah. It's got that classic 80s nostalgia for mid-century stuff, mm. I feel. Yeah. Mm. And we don't really return to that, to that, um, that framing device, mm. um, except perhaps, perhaps implicitly. Mm. So the way I read this, obviously, was, you know, I think this is obviously 
could work as a as a high concept science fiction mm. um, extravaganza if you if you like. But instead, it actually settles into a more a more um, I guess we might say meditation mm. on on aging mm. on um, enduring loyalty to one's partner and also to the the fear that um, one's memory will go before one's body and it's a very beautiful portrait of a couple isn't it like mm. very but there's an, there's an analogy isn't there between the planet and aged care so like you know there's a scene where the sissy spacek her character um irene goes to visit a a woman in a nursing home with alzheimer's mm. and this is a person that um irene chooses to tell about the planet mm. and the woman with alzheimer's is confused and distressed but Sissy Spacek is also distressed at telling someone for the first time. And I thought there was something about, like, you know when you go to a nursing home, it's always poignant to see the kind of makeshift mise-en-scene. Yeah. You know, the way where people have set up a little pocket of home yeah. in this impersonal place. That's a bit like the way they furnish the pod on the yes. planet as well. So when, when, they go to, when they arrive at the pod on the planet, it's this kind of austere metallic structure, a bit like a nursing home room, but they've decked it out with chairs yeah. They've decked it out with blankets, a little telescope. So it's like there's a connection between the nursing home and the the the, ex, the pod on the moon. Definitely, in, on, yeah. It's a very it's a very passive, mm. uh, relax. It's a space mm. of relaxation yeah. in some ways, and it's and, like, and watching exactly watching and waiting yeah. for something that doesn't necessarily come. Yeah, and I think that's that's where you get the resonances with 50s sci-fi. So there's, mm. there's all sorts of motifs of mm. uh, an iconography of 1950s sci-fi. Mm. So the actual portal itself, like a bomb shelter, exactly yep. looks like a bomb shelter. It has all those the kind of crudeness. Mm. Um, rudimentary quality of a, a, mm. a piece of anachronistic technology mm. um, there's not a great deal of uh, high-tech science fiction the actual mm. transportation it's al- and- I mean it's almost like the planet is a mindset mm. like it's almost like the planet is something in the back of their minds mm. and it's just what I loved about it like I felt like it's like because the planet is there and that widescreen potential is there always in the background Everything in this series, I thought, had such a cinematic sheen mm. and poise. Like, and when you say meditative, that's exactly right. Like, it had that, it had that rich atmosphere and that rich sense of pacing and that rich sense of place that I associate with cinema before streaming mm. and cinema before digital mm. culture. And it's it's almost like the planet, because yeah, it's it's almost like the planet is there. It 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 adds that cosmic vocabulary, not not by making the world cosmic, but by just giving it that sheen. Mm. Mm. And it's the thing I love about that Spielbergian science fiction, like it it kind of makes it makes the Midwest, it makes America cosmic, but it also domesticates outer space. Mm. So the series is, mm. I think, I think this episode just strikes a really good balance between being very cosmic and mm. very cosy and, yeah. very, and very lived in and just very human and warm. Yeah, there's a, there's a staticness to the scene, the yeah. scenery of the, the planet. Nothing changes, they no. say, and they've, they've spent you know, decades waiting mm. for something to happen. Um, much like on Earth, they've barely left their house mm. in some ways. And there's this kind of quiet, sort of hushed stasis mm. over all the events in this in this pilot and in some respects you know the the, the end is is mm. quite dramatic because you know Sissy Spacek decides to take mm. assume agency mm. and control over her own destiny and yeah there's there's a kind of almost waiting for Godot like quality mm. to this pilot but I thought I thought the tone was so right like I thought this pilot could have gone one of two ways right and I, I never did it could have got really morbid or turgid mm. But it could have also settled into a kind of Stranger Things, maybe Stranger Things now, like just bland pastiche. Yeah. And it was neither. It was just, it was so poised. Like, it just made me think, like, you know, you and I grew up grew up with cinema as the primary means of entertainment, even mm. above television. And it's mm. just something about growing up with widescreen eyes. Mm. Like something about growing up being used to get your main source of entertainment from big screens. Mm. Mm. That just, it, it gives you a different not a better, but just a different kind of capacity for wonder. Yeah. And I just feel like this captured that. It was like that the mm. big screens were nowhere in the real world mm. anymore, mm. but they were there in the back of their minds still looking out into outer space Yeah, yeah. in a way that was really beautiful, yeah. I thought. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. This this room is almost like an allegory for uh, memory. Yeah, yeah, and it's cinematic just, memory. Yeah, like, the, the way that celluloid freezes things yeah. you know, into a still in some ways so and exactly yeah. that's why it doesn't move it's just one yeah it's it's a very it's a very uh, cerebral mm. space and a very cerebral pilot mm. um, for that but I think this actually works quite well as a self-contained short film I agree I in agree in a way that a lot of pilots don't absolutely um, absolutely I think you, this could definitely be studied as a short mm. as a self-contained short film absolutely too. Um, except for the the hook at the end mm. which I thought was probably unnecessary mm. 
I agree. I I mean, I didn't mind it. But yeah, I agree. Didn't need it though. No, it didn't. And it's funny, like, it didn't. I agree. I mean, the atmosphere was so great on its own terms. And it, it kind of, it reminded me how good Spielberg can be, you know. With, there's been so many Spielberg films in recent years that, let's be honest, are a little average. Mm. But just, I mean, two things reminded me so much of Spielberg here, like the deep blues, those mm. deep blue misty distances. It reminded me... Um, one of my friends is telling me, you know, you know writer Rebecca Solnit? Yeah. Yeah, she's, she, if you read her piece, you got this piece she writes about blue, and she says that blue is like the colour of yearning. She's like, blue is the colour of how there looks from here. Right. And right. I feel like that's, you know, that's Spielberg's blue, like the mm. colour of distances that you can't traverse. Mm. But also that Spielbergian hush, mm. the quietness, like that sense that there's out there in the Midwest and darkness, mm. there's a network just below the threshold of consciousness yeah. that you can't quite get to. And I just, both those things mm. I thought were so beautiful. And I agree, like it was almost like watching a self-contained Spielberg early film, like mm. before special effects, before fanfare, mm. just the deep blues and the hush. It made me want to go back and rewatch Close Encounters and E.T. Mm. again. Mm. I, I loved it. I, thought, I was really, mm. really taken mm. with it. I like what you're saying about the, the colour blue and that yeah. sense of yearning. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, look back and look. Because there, there is a sense that when they go into this, this space that mm. are they the observers or are they the observed? Absolutely. And it just call, recall to mind, um, you know, those scenes, those incredibly um, static kind of compositional scenes in in a plastic, almost plastic scenes in mm. 2001: A Space yeah, Odyssey. Yeah, absolutely. In the kind of uh, you know terrarium mm. in some ways. Mm. So um, yeah, it, it definitely there's a lot of interesting science fiction mm. texts. You know, Spielberg, 1950 sci-fi, Stanley Kubrick. Which that's, is there, but it's not it's not laden on too thick. And in terms of the podcast, even just like you know, out of range. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting pilot. Mm. But you know, and this was kind of like you know, out of range was the West with a you know a portal. This is a Midwest with a space you know a space portal. Yeah. I thought out of range was really interesting, and I really like bits of it. But I thought this was just seamless in a different kind of way, and just tonally, yeah, this this it's different. It's different. I just didn't feel like it had the A plot, the B plot. No that um, some pilots yeah. do. It didn't feel manufactured. It felt like this was extrapolated from a short film. Mm. And um, I'm partly interested and intrigued to know whether it was because yeah. it feels very much like That's that. a really... It reminded me of a film that um, Dave, friend of the podcast, hey, Dave, recommended The Vast of Night. Did you oh, see? yes, yeah, The Vast of Night. You said that? Yeah, it reminded yeah, me of that. Like, yeah. It's like that film takes over a single night in the Midwest, mm. a series of strange phenomena, and that's just kind of it, that mm. hush. Mm. But look, it really took me by surprise because I thought I knew what it would be. I thought it would be this... I thought it would just be like either a fairly staid allegory for ageing or a kind of, you know, science, a kind of a, you know, a slightly, you know, obvious science fiction premise. But it was, and I found the couple so moving. Yeah. Like there's such a beautiful depiction, such beautiful acting from Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simons. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think the act, the central couple was very well drawn. And and very, like, very moving too. Like you, you infer that their son has died. Mm. And that's moving, but also it's moving that there are no children in it because... Yeah. You know, childlike wonder yeah. is such a part of the Spielberg universe and of yeah. this, this mode. So to have a film that is so suffused with childlike wonder, mm. but no children mm. and a child who's passed away, mm. it's almost like there's something pointing back. It's like all the children who watch these films are now grown up. Yeah. Like, you know, we the children who watched E.T. and Close Encounters, that generation has yeah. grown up. And it was just so... Yeah. It was so... There's, there's definitely a real pathos to this show. But, you know, like a, a show when a child has died or a son has died or a daughter, it can easily just feel like you know, easy grief drama. Yeah. But here it just, it contoured it beautifully. It's like the Spielberg, yeah, Spielbergian mode without the Spielbergian child. Mm, it mm, was... Mm. Part of me wonders, just to be a slight naysay here, yeah. whether this would have worked better as a film. This is something I wonder too. As a, this is something eight, I wonder too. Eight or ten episodes. Yeah. Because um, it can't get better. No. I don't think so. And I also think the pacing can be a bit tighter. Could yep. be a bit tighter. Mm. So, obviously this is the main mode that, mm. you know, narratives are being released um, through which is you know this eight episode ten episode uh, series but um, maybe perhaps this would have worked much better as an indie standalone uh, cinema and, fu um, event. and future directions are interesting aren't they because something I, something you often wonder like a, a key element of this midwest kind of mode i think is how far is it going to slip into horror mm. so interestingly apparently when night skies this spielberg film was shelved part of the content went into et mm. and part of it went into poltergeist Oh, really? So it's okay. interesting. So this, there were moments here. It's like I wonder if it's going to dip into a more of a horror element, mm. and I kind of, 
I kind of hope it doesn't. Like it's it's great as it is. But I know. You mean, I mean, I wonder another way of putting what you're saying is this is the perfect expression of this in a way Spielberg's un, unrealized film Night Skies. Yeah. Like is this hence the title? Like yeah. is this really what it is? Yeah. The best. You know, like and that's that's what it should have been, and that's what it could have echoed if it was a, a proper feature length film mm, but mm. I look I was entranced I, it, it, I, I've liked a lot of stuff I've, I've, every show we've watched this week is a bit of a spoiler I've liked in some different way but this mm. was a sleeper hit for me I was really mm. entranced by mm. it mm. I was intrigued I think yeah. this is this is definitely worth pursuing to see yep. where it goes mm. okay on to our third show this week so this is I guess a sort of biopic called Angeline <sighs> It's about a figure who, ironically, I'd never heard of, I even though either. the whole point of her career was fame. Yes. Um, had you had you watched any films with Earth Girls Are Easy? Oh, she's in Earth Girls yeah, Are Easy. I, that was on her on the timeline. I th- I've never seen that, but I thought oh, you might. Oh yes, you might I have, have seen being, that. Uh, you know, deeply, you know, marinated in the nineteen uh, eighties. Uh, yeah, right. That makes sense, doesn't it? In terms yeah. of her, but anyway, the the the, the person's about is was born Ronya Ronya Tamer Goldberg in 1950, but she re- <laughs> did you just blow did you just blow the whole the whole look of the show, which is who is who is who is she? Maybe I did, but but <laughs> is that but but but, but that's it. But is that what the show is really about? Though, like I feel like the show is about. I feel like the show is kind of about her brand and yeah, the significance a, of yeah, her brand. Yeah, it's about like, how she she reinvented herself. Yeah. She's a model of you know. The art of reinvention. Mm. I, yeah. I didn't get much of a sense of an origin story from the the pilot. I thought it was more just about the way she built a kind of image empire. Yeah, was my sense. Yeah, but um, I feel like there's some sort of underlying oh, kind right. of you know trauma. By well, like, which, you know, but I guess she pre- emerged like a phoenix from the ashes. But I guess, <laughs> but I guess, I guess <laughs> saying her name. <laughs> but I guess pre- presumably she had a name other than Angela. I've just said the name. But yeah, yeah, presumably she had a name. Yeah, so she's famous basically for being famous. So in 1984. Billboard started to appear in LA with this woman, Angeline, you know, dressed in a scantily clad way, alluring way, mm. and just her name, Angeline. Mm. Mm. And that, that was it. And all of a sudden, these billboards became a part of the kind of, like, you know, vernacular of yeah. the Los Angeles landscape, the topography. And people started to contact her for modelling gigs, for film roles, for, you know, musical performances. And she kind of became a celebrity overnight mm. in a fleeting way. And apparently a pink Corvette was her signature. Yeah. So the way the series positions her, like, is she's she was, you know, she was famous for being famous several decades before Kim Kardashian and mm. Paris Hilton. And I think in terms of the shows we've been watching, this kind of fits into that kind of scammer industrial complex group <laughs> of shows. Like, I mean, Inventing Anna in particular. Yeah. But also, you know, even shows like We Crashed, um, Super Pumped, The Dropout. It's about it's about entrepreneurship. But whereas we've talked about how those shows are kind of like together, collectively those shows provide a kind of... Well, it's like the rhetoric of the disruptor. Yeah, like the, and, and those shows collectively are a kind of period piece about the 2010s. Yeah. Um, as, as the era of, you know, especially app entrepreneurship, but just general digital entrepreneurship. It's mm. almost like this is the deep history. This is like the, the prelude to the 2010s um, in the 80s. And in that sense, she's kind of figured as the first influencer. Like she's figured as a kind of proto-influencer, I think. Mm. And it's kind of interesting. Like the show specifically, I think, presents her as a kind of Instagram figure before Instagram. So mm. she finds all these kind of surrogates for Instagram. So she treats billboards like Instagram, mm. like she puts stuff up. She treats um, posters like Instagram. And she has a very Instagram rhythm to her mm. life. Like she has people take photographs mm. of her every day. She even uses the, the classic Instagram colour, the millennial yeah. pink. She uses a millennial pink. Well, exactly. <laughs> she uses a millennial pink. Um, but yeah, she, 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 gets, she has daily photographs. Um, the basic plot of it is she joins a band, a punk band, and basically sells herself as an image that can sell the band mm. and then uses the band to kind of further her own image. But a lot of a lot of the, of the pilot is her getting the band members to print photographs of her and organise images of her and then take them down when they're not good enough. So she has this, she has this sense that her image has to be um, disseminated and revised daily. Yes. And, and she has to craft her image at, at yeah. a kind of daily micro Constant level. Constant self uh, self-curation. Self, self-fashioning. Yeah. It reminds me of um, uh, Gia Tolentino wrote an essay about Instagram called Always Be Optimising. Yeah. So you have to be always op- optimising your image at every moment. Yeah. And that's basically what she's doing. So 
it's kind of interesting like to see because you know obviously people with that influencer sensibility existed at some level before instagram so it's kind of interesting to see and like if, if you think of yeah these these recent disruptor dramas as being like the history of the influencer 2010s mm. it's kind of interesting to see what influencers looked when they only they didn't have digital mm. space to deal with they just had and and it seems like for her like billboards are the most important influencer medium yes <laughs> like that's it, right like, i think there's a framing device about journalists trying to contact her in the present mm. and the way they kind of get on a good side and get her to give an interview is by contributing to her indiegogo campaign to get one of her billboards back up again so yeah. it's like billboards yeah. instagram is a new billboards yeah the logic i think of the consistent show. with the logic of instagram and the the rhetoric Instagram is this concept of personal branding yeah, and branding. And there's there's the whole, I guess, you know, secret history here mm. of, you know, of branding and the, the idea of branding and almost the kind of quasi-mystical quality um, of a brand. So, so it's interesting. So I, I went both ways with that. So on the one hand, there's this mystical vision of branding as like, you know, as an apotheosis of los angeles as a place right so like she mm. she calls herself angeline after los angeles mm. she says that i mean this is a bit early on where a journalist says i love angeline for all the reasons i love los angeles and it's like she gathers all these different parts of los angeles in her person she has a shrine to marilyn but she also is interested in kind of occult and new age philosophy so like there's this sense in which angeline's whole image is like mystical or exotic or arcane los angeles mm. but on the other hand a part of me thought you know for all the exoticism if she was living today she'd just be a brand manager in some corporation <laughs> do you know what i mean she'd just be well, she'd, she'd be kim kardashian yeah yeah exactly no. or, or even more banal maybe she'd just be working in pr or image <laughs> management or consulting like she'd be working in some quaternary industry yeah do you know what i mean so it's kind of funny like yeah. on the one hand there's this incredible exotic allure to herself branding at the time but you know I feel like now she, you know, she's like every second person I've met who works in consulting. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's something yeah. about it. There's an interesting. There's an interesting. Yeah, it's not a criticism. No, it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting kind of interrogation of you know how does a brand come to be, mm. and there's a sense of it, there's a kind of a poria or ellipsis at the mm. foundation of it mm. that that leaves everyone somewhat mm. mystified as to mm. how this person has become famous, but the very fact of you know this self creation has mm. made them famous, mm. and we just move we move forward on that premise. Um, and yeah, I think there's, I think there's something, you know, very 21st century about mm. this, obviously this model of fame, but there's no doubt that this, you know, her self reinvention, you know, was, I guess, coincident with the, the golden age of branding, mm. um, 1980s, you know, the dissemination of all this, you know, marketing and well, this is what I mean. like, you know, at mass the, media, mass advertising. At the time media. it seems, it seems so novel, but it's funny in a mm. way now it seems banal. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like it's both mm. at the same time. Mm. It was just. It's interesting too, just the musical element, because it's like, it's almost like she joins this band, this punk band, and she basically becomes their, their kind of mascot, mm. their kind of um, flagship yeah. image, imi their flagship image, mm. and overnight it's like she turns a band from punk to new wave. Mm. So it's like you see these two. It's like you see this this point of divergence in musical history. Like on the one hand, the band have this kind of start off with this kind of snotty punk kind of quality, like just raw, immediate kind of bodies. But then she is like this kind of mannequinized body. Like she describes herself as Barbie. You know, she says that she loves the fact that Barbie doesn't have any flaws. Mm. So it's like you have this kind of abject punk body and this mannequinized MTV body mm. kind of diverging, mm. you know, at, the, at, the, at, this, at this kind of nexus between punk and new wave. And it's just, it just it's, there's something very eerie about seeing punk transform into a kind of a progenitor of brand management mm, and mm. the kind of image economy of the present mm. and and i think she also is emblematic of the the way that branding sells sex but at its heart is quite sexless mm. in some ways mm. so she describes herself as barbie which is very appropriate mm. because she has this mannequinized hyperbolic female mm. qualities but she constantly rebuffs mm. sex and, all the way through this pilot and there's also something about her that is kind of artific artificial and sexless as mm. well it's kind of funny. It is like she turns into music video, right? Like all these mm. these guys are just you know rocking out at a punk venue, and all of a sudden she's there dancing on the stage, posing. It's like it's like she glimpses music video, mm. like a, like she she turns this punk act into a kind of alluring visual spectacle. Mm. She makes a midi music video before it's really a thing. Mm. Mm. Apparently, and I hear this I hear this from people I know who are on Instagram. But apparently, there's like you know rockabilly 
Instagirls, have you heard of this? It's no. like It's like scantily clad women on Instagram in like rockabilly outfits. Mm. So it's like mm. it's like for kind of dudes who like their girls but also like their rockabilly music. <laughs> I feel like she's almost got like that's a rock... That's a micro niche right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've heard diverse people reference it. So it's kind of like... Okay. But it's an Instagram. It felt a bit yeah. like that at times. Yeah, definitely a progenitor yeah. of Instagram in the sense yep. that she, she made her life or she fashioned her life such that she would always be 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 the object of fascination, mm. the object of curiosity, mm. the centre of people's attention. Mm. She'd always be filmed. So obviously, you know, the billboards built into a kind of personal fame, personal brand management, mm. which, you know, I guess reached its kind of climax in the 80s when she was driving around LA. The pink Corvette. And a kind of spirit of the place, like quality in this pink Corvette. And it, always it, have, you know having photos taken with her. And, and it is so funny forth. how much of this stuff links back to LA. Like it reminded me of, um, did you say Ingrid Goes West? That film with Aubrey yes, Plaza and Elizabeth. I did. So that's yeah, a film that that's yeah. also about Instagram. Yeah. But it also, like, you know, so it's about Aubrey Plaza plays um, an Instagram user who becomes obsessed with an Instagram celebrity played by Elizabeth Olsen and follows her to LA and develops a fixation on it. But throughout the film, it's almost like Instagram is more and more grounded in like 70s LA, mm. like sun-dappled LA. It's almost mm. like the, the LA of Joan Didion in yes. particular becomes a kind <laughs> of... lifestyle. Yeah, it becomes a kind of prelude to Instagram. Yeah. So yeah. Instagram kind of channels the spirit of 70s LA. And I thought there was interesting, something similar is happening here too. It's just a slightly later moment. Like Instagram is channeling the spirit of an entrepreneurial 80s LA. But yeah. in, in both cases, Instagram was almost like a a natural extension of the LA cityscape. Yes. Hence the billboards. Yeah. You know, hence... so. Yeah, so it was, it was really interesting. I mean, and it's almost like, so it has a framing device of her talking about events in the present and often revising events. So we'll see a version of events, most notably her boyfriend being on a billboard and her getting you know frustrated that he's on the billboard first and then her saying, no, here's how it happened in the present and then her being on the billboard in the past. Mm. And that kind of works too because it's almost like in the present she's still curating her own story. Mm. Like it's like in the present she's still choosing the photos and... Mm. So it was, yeah, it was just it was just it was just interesting. So it was like, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd watch more. I thought I kind of got enough from this. Yes, but I I felt I felt in, in pretty similar. I felt like you know, it's an interesting story. Mm. I think it was told well. Mm. I think one of the one of the most unique features of this is that it it has multiple unreliable narrators who mm. tell the story, and there's some quite you know uh, good rich comic moments mm. where the both narrators kind of contradict each mm. other in their story and you have them literally, you know, interjecting into scenes, breaking the fourth mm. wall and reenacting the scene mm. as it as it took place Which in is, a more authentic way. And again, it's like the kind of the, the, the kind of equivalent of like the kind of Instagram, Instagram user, stories. Yeah, go, yeah or, or going through like 10 photographs and just figuring which one is going to fit best. Yeah, yeah so yeah. exactly. That's exactly what it's like, like an Instagram yeah. story. I thought that was quite funny. I thought that, yeah. did you find that? Um, I did. That and presentation I thought, quite... And I thought it was just kind of comic too. I mean just seeing in an influencer mm. before they had the apparatus to influence. So mm. just resorting to mm. physical stuff around them to try and make it happen. Yeah. So, and just interesting in terms of the podcast too, because like we said, it, it feels like this is the deep history or the prologue to the 2010s that we've been seeing in so much recent entrepreneur, as you said, disruptor drama. Yeah. So I thought it was, re- yeah, it was interesting. I just, I didn't think it had quite enough dramatic momentum. Mm. And, you know, also like, do you really want to spend eight episodes with an influencer? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like she's pretty one note. Yes. I felt, I felt like I kind of got she's it. She's dialed up. I kind of got really it. She's really dialed yeah, up. Yeah. She's dialed up to a thousand. Yeah. Um, she's quite an unlikable, vacuous mm. character. And just kind of boring. So like yeah. It, it's, yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah. So I, I imagine that they, they're going to really penetrate that deep into her mm. backstory and obviously, you know, uncover her foundational mm. traumatic moment that led mm. to this radical self reinvention. But I don't know whether I'm quite interested enough no, to. And in a way, I to think sta- it's to you know steer the course. And in a way, I mean, you know, that's kind of maybe what I'm saying. Like on the one hand, it, it will probably present this extraordinarily exceptional thing, like exceptional trauma led to exceptional image, you know, control. But I think in the present, influencing brand management, image management has just become a part of our you know, late capitalist economy. Yeah. So I think, in a way, I think it's it's more powerful for me just to have watched this pilot and see it just as a, as a banal, but also fascinating yeah. fact in itself. It doesn't have to be a trauma behind it. Yeah, yeah, It's become... Yeah, and you know, you've already blown a name, so... Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. I think, yeah, exactly. So look, I think that it was interesting. It was interesting, but I probably wouldn't watch any more. Yeah, I think, I think definitely an interesting deep dive into LA history. Mm. Okay, so on to our archive corner choice for this week. Mm-hmm. Billy, how do you feel about eye horror? 
So <laughs> some of you will know, some of you will not know that there are a few things that I can deal with less than eye violence. It's, it's the reason I didn't watch A Clockwork Orange for years. There are some films I've never watched because of it. And, you know, I, I settled down to watch this archive choice in good faith. I think so, with a, a hot, hot cup of cocoa and uh, some cookies. I was thinking, I was thinking you, know, you know, it's a horror series. How, you know, how, how violent can it be? Um, I almost fainted. I watched it. I watched it late at night. I felt nauseous, and I've been thinking about it ever since. So, did you know Thank this? You for that. Did you know this had eye violence? Well, well, it's a bit of a bit of background. I knew nothing about this series, okay. um, other than that I saw it. Should we say um, what it is, by the way? Yeah. So the yep. series is the series is, is Masters of Horror. Yep. And it's a series that's currently streaming on Stan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally created by the Showtime Cable Network, mm-hmm. and it's got uh, a very naughty's cable look. It does, don't you it think? does. Yeah. Yep. So it went for two se- two seasons um, in twenty in two thousand and five um, to early two thousand and seven. Uh, each of the episodes is completely self contained. They're all around now long, so effectively we have twenty six short horror movies. Mm. And the conceit is that each of these horror movies is directed by a very famous, critically acclaimed cult horror director. Mm. A little bit of interesting origin story behind this. Mm. Um, so this actually stems from a dinner party um, oh, you know, really? uh, hosted by director Mike Garris and Sherman Oaks. Mm. And the original 10 masters actually attended and they were John Carpenter, Larry Cohen, Don Coscarelli, Joe Dante, Guillermo del Toro, Stuart Gordon, Toby Hooper, John Landis and Bill Malone. That would have been an amazing dinner party. Yeah. That dinner party should be a film. I know, I know, yeah, that, I know. That, so they, apparently they all they all had a great time. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder when like 10 horror auteurs get together, do they talk about horror? I know, I know. Well, they ex- apparently they express mutual admiration. Mm. And as a result of this... Um, it could have been pretty self-congratulatory too. <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. It could have been a giant circle joke. It could have been, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Guillermo del Toro coined a name for the group, uh, Masters of Horror. <laughs> so they named the group Masters of Horror before the series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They've kind of anointed it themselves. So what uh, we're masters. seeing in the series is just like the echo of that, that collective pat in the back. That's right. Yep. That's right. So yep. they, they, the subsequent dinner parties uh, were hosted and it included some other new invitees, mm. including uh, Dario Argento, Eli Roth, Wes Craven, Cronenberg, Ty West, and so forth. Mm. So it's pretty. It's a pretty. It's a pretty. You know. Yeah, it's, it's a murderer's of, role of horror director. It's the Illuminati of <laughs> horror cinema. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because we always thought Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut was was fiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perhaps not. Um, so, so it seems because remember you talked about last week with damages, just that moment in the mid two thousands mid noughties when there was this fascination with bringing cinema and cinematic values to the screen mm. like it's, it's a bit after that first wave of The Wire and The Sopranos it's a mm. specific fascination with cinematic television yes this feels very much at that moment just yes. get, let's get the best horror directors and get them each to make it te- I mean th- there are precursors to it but it, it also feels very the scale of it feels very yes. mid 2000s and interestingly as well I guess given the the masters that they've assembled, mm. mainly 80s masters. Mm. There's a real throwback energy mm. and, and vibe and aesthetic to a lot, of, to at least the pilot. Yes, um, yes. So, yeah, so originally uh, streamed on on Showtime to, mm. to very good reviews. And in particular, the premiere episode or the pilot, which mm. we watched, called Incident on and off a mountain road. Uh, most of it's off the mountain road. Let's <laughs> I, 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 be honest, eye gouging <laughs> off a mountain road. That's basically what's happening here. <laughs> so this was considered uh, quite a success mm. as a sort of self-contained short horror film. Mm. So this was co-written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Mm. Are you familiar with Don no, Coscarelli's No, so I was going to say, he was like almost the only person on that list I don't know. Yeah, what, so he, he was famous for directing the Phantasm movies. Oh, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, which yeah. were um, yeah, as, you know, made to several uh, series. Mm. He also did the Beastmaster and later on Baba Hotep. Okay. Oh, um, right. Okay. So yeah. a real, a real, you know, cultists, cult horror director, mm. in some ways. And um, largely, this series concerns a young lady who the first episode. Yes. Yep, yep. Yes. Oh, yeah. The first episode because each each um, episode is completely self-contained. Mm. So a young lady's driving along an isolated mountain road, and where she. Um, veers off it as a result of an obstacle and then encounters uh, what we assume to be a serial killer. Mm. Now, there is a slight supernatural quality to this to this pilot, but it's not not leaned on too heavily. Mm. But largely, this is a sort of damsel in distress, you know, quasi-survivalist type story. Mm. And the the immediate action is, is leaving it interspersed 
um, with a series of flashbacks to uh, our protagonist's relationship with a genuine survivalist hmm. and the various... Played by Ethan Embry. <laughs> Ethan Embry. Another big throwback to yep. classic mid-90s. So, so in the present, she break down, fleeing a psycho in the woods, flashback, survivalist boyfriend. Yeah, survivalist yeah. boyfriend, who's who's teaching her the, the tricks of the trade, mm. which will come in absolutely essential in, in surviving this night of mm. terror in the woods. Mm. Um, what did you think? So this is really interesting. So it, it's interesting. I think I have a, a bit of a different perspective from you in some ways. Like... I definitely agree it's like a throwback to the 80s in, in some sense. But I almost felt like this was taking that older style of anthology series like Tales from the Crypt and updating it to two major horror trends in the noughties, right? Um, handheld found footage horror okay. and torture porn. So it was interesting to see that playing out on television. So lots of the... like so. The story is kind of divided into two halves, leaving aside the flashbacks. It's her fleeing through the woods and then her trying to escape the creature's lair. Mm. And when she's fleeing through the woods, it's all handheld. It's The woods are pretty much just abstract vortex of darkness and lightning and, you know, foliage. So that, that yeah. feels very heavily drawn from Blair Witch. Yeah. And I think, you know, giving audio, like at the time, it's easy to forget just how visceral and horrific just visually that found footage style was, mm, that handheld mm. footage style was. It's still was. effective. It's still very effective. So there's there's that element. But I feel like once she gets to the monster's lair or the creature, we're in full-blown torture, <laughs> yeah. to, full torture porn territory. And I was thinking yeah. like one of the real... It's like a, the long lost Hostel sequel. Well, 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 absolutely. And I think like one of the... I was trying to get my head around what makes torture porn distinct. And like one of the features I think is what I'm... I've got a, a kind of a grindhouse materiality so mm. rusty equipment mm. you know chains creaky hinges <laughs> like makeshift mechanics like yeah. a sense of just awkward great i think torture porn above all above even being violent it's grating yeah. like it's like nails on a blackboard yeah. so yeah. just grating imperfect machinery yeah is a real torture it's porn staple with the the emergence of that that you know post metal um, well, I was going to say, I mean, I reckon this killer listens to a lot of Slipknot. <laughs> Don't you think? Like, the whole style of it is new metal. I mean, he looks yeah. like, it's like, it's like a new metal music video, a lot <laughs> of it. Like, it's like you just, he listened to like one Limp Bizkit song too many. But, and, and also in the, in this kind of, this lair, she's surrounded by the bodies of the guy's previous mm. victims. And they're all, they're all propped up at awkward angles too. So it's like, it's like, it's like, and I feel, and I often say it's about a lot of stuff, but I feel like torture porn is very much a reaction against like seamless digital cinema. It's like all the machinery and equipment is kind of awkward and clunky. Mm. The human body is just like another awkward, ungainly machine. Mm. And it's designed to remind you that the camera itself is also an awkwardly embodied object. Hence the continuity with handheld horror yeah. and found footage horror. So I thought this was kind of like the old style tales from the crypt anthology horror series meets found footage and torture porn horror mm. i wasn't expecting quite how violent the torture porn would be so, so <laughs> for a tv show you, you, this is a hard r so this is and it's funny because it comes up as r on stand mm. and i was like oh yeah sure r, whatever um <laughs> it's funny you talk about hostel because i mean hostel 2 the the iconic scene which i've never watched I'm just fast, <laughs> is the, the eyegasm scene right where someone's eye is is melted with a blowtorch yeah this also focuses on eye violence um in a very very visceral way um Basically, it turns out that the psycho, um, the killer, has some fixation with eyes. So what he does is he straps his victims to a you know a table, a typical torture porn table, like you know creaky, old, <laughs> rusty, and he just drills into their eyes while they're yeah, still it's alive. Just like old crank crankshaft kind of drill. Now this, when, when this <laughs> happened, I was like, "What the actual?" I mean, at first, I thought he was just going to threaten them. I'm like, "That's friggin' scary enough." And then I was like, "What now?" And and then it, yeah. it shifts back yeah. to the, the 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 drill coming out. So this is yeah. this is hardcore eye violence. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine just flicking on the telly <laughs> late at night in two thousand and five and coming across this? It, it is. And I, I was thinking about it, like you know I feel like eye violence is the ultimate expression of torture porn because I think above all else, torture porn wants to re-embody your cinematic viewing experience. Mm. I mean, digital cinema is so disembodying. Torture mm. porn wants to make you very aware that you're watching a film with your whole body and mm. your eye is a part of your body. Yeah. Your eye is embodied. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like assaulting the eye yeah. is a, absolutely 
the project of torture porn. <laughs> so it makes sense here, and it makes sense there's that continuity. Yeah. But and look, it's a very effective scene. Yeah. But it is. I mean, I almost fainted. Yeah. It it is intense. Yeah. And the other interesting um, context behind you know the torture porn movement is the emergence of the internet, yep. and the rise of you know, short viral videos of yep. of internet violence absolutely and and i think also american torture so guantanamo bay the yeah. iconography those two things coming together yeah. and again the, the emergence of you know short form online viral content the continuity with handheld horror yeah. the continuity with found that found footage torture continuity yeah, yeah. which you see even like prefaced in something like videodrome i'm even thinking now has both those things yeah but years before the fact but yeah 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 so yeah, I, I agree, and, and I think the the monster in this who I don't remains nameless, like you said, yeah, could, Fred Fred Durst <laughs> was that his name? Exactly, could yeah. have, could have strayed off yeah. the stage of a Slayer concert in some ways, and I guess that that kind of baroque, um, uh, you know, tableau of all the bodies as mm. well is like something you would see in a Slipknot cover. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and here's the thing, like it's like Hieronymus Bosch. It is, it is, it is absolutely. <laughs> but, and just but just grating and clunky yeah. in a. In a in a really kind of jarring way. I mean, that, that's how I feel about Torchport. It's violent, but above, it's violent in a grating, jarring, nasty way. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I thought the creature was really corny, but I thought the violence was so intense and the twist was so great. Yeah, it was a good twist, wasn't it? That yeah. I just, I was in. So do, yeah. do you want to talk, should I talk to the twist or do you want to tell us how, how it ends? Like, it's a great twist. Well, should we disclose the twist? I think I think we can just. Okay. You, okay. So, okay. Shall I tell the twist? Like yeah, it, sure. So go she, on, she, go she escapes back to her car in the end. She kills the monster, um, and I think this is the eeriest moment in the film. She arrives at the car, and this in the, in the episode. Sorry, she arrives at the car, and this strange silence settles over everything, and it's it's really scary in a way that's hard to define. Just as you know, as context in the flashbacks we've seen, her survivalist boyfriend is getting more and more aggressive in his survivalism. When they meet, he's a relatively normal guy. It's a strange first date, though. It's a strange first date. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think don't go to a cabin in the woods with someone on the first date. But he, you know, he, he's an ancestor of modern white terrorists and yeah. incels. Like, he's, he's, he's that kind of survivalist. But over time, he becomes more possessive and more intense about his survivalism and isolates her and keeps her, you know, prison. Yeah. Now, what you sense from the flashbacks is that, in a way her ability to escape from the psycho and the present is going to redeem that old relationship. His wisdom will come good. Yeah. But when she returns to her car, we realise that all along she's had his body in the boot. Yeah. She's ki- well, kidnapped's a strong word. She's um, sedated him because he's gone too far with his violence towards her. So that's the first twist. And the second twist is she takes him back <laughs> to the monster's lair and she gives him the drill and the eye treatment yeah. and then she leaves. Yeah. So it reminded me quite a bit of 10 Cloverfield Lane in that, you know, you know that, just for those who haven't seen it, Ten Cloverfield Lane is about a woman who um, is run off the road. She wakes up in an underground bunker. John Goodman says to her, "There are aliens outside. You can't leave." So he says, "You know, there's been an alien attack of some kind." She's not sure if he's a psycho or not. The twist is he's a psycho and there are aliens. <laughs> and and this film has a similar vibe, right? Sorry, it's like just because the monsters are real doesn't mean the survivalists were right. It's that logic. It's a great twist. So yeah. it you know it turns out that he was absol- that her boyfriend was absolutely right for her to fear the wilderness. Yeah. But that doesn't make him any less of a psycho. No. So it has this incredible double ending that just that just, you know, turns everything around perception wise and comes back to that eye violence and ends on that eye violence. And look, you know, by this stage I was frigging <laughs> I was faint. But it, it's an incredible ending. I say it's an it incredible is. ending. And is, yeah. you know, if you wanted to see how does torture porn and found footage work as television, this is it. Yeah. So part of the question I I had, I mean, I wonder if future episodes are this intense? Like, well, I, you know, I know. I can't imagine they'd be much more violent. Mm. Um, this is the most. Given this the, is the most the violent directors that are used, but mm. um, obviously, this is this is obviously the apotheosis of of on screen violence. This, this is the most. Era. Yeah, this is the most violent yeah. television I've seen. Mm. I think. Um, mm. and, yeah, that, and that that period of film as well. Uh, mm. We've we've backed away, I think, from that yeah. that really schlocky kind of. Violence. Well, I think it's just, it's just it's just it's not as shocking anymore, and also probably people realised after a while it was just kind of unpleasant. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? By that saw six, yeah. people are like, "Oh, okay, watching torture is like, it's not that nice." Yeah, and Hostel Two as well. There was a sort of, you know, yeah, people started you know yeah. questioning their own motives and yeah. going to you know very troubling motives in going to slightly, see. Slight, maybe a slightly misogynist element yeah. <laughs> to, the, to Hostel Two. <laughs> yeah, so 
I thought this was this was a good synthesis of those mm. different different styles and also the mm. legacy of the the nineteen eighties. I also thought just in a, in a more you know classical kind of way. I thought it really got that the way to make horror work on the small screen is claustrophobia. Mm. So there are almost no establishing shots or wide shots. You're always right in close to her face. Mm. The series has got this really grey noughties cable palette. <laughs> it does. That, I mean, at first, I'm I'm somebody who like you know I love space in horror films I love and it's not very spatial no. so at the beginning no. I was off, put off by it has that has a slightly crappy CGI feel yeah. to the, ba- the background it does but it, that doesn't that doesn't derail this in a no. way that you might think it would and over time I was like actually I think this claustrophobia kind of works yeah. like so it kind of gets it at this point in time to make before we had like real, real cinematic television like you know flat screen the way to make horror work was kind of claustrophobia. Yeah. Your small screen. And even when they're outside in the woods, it still feels like you're confined in this little space. Mm, so, mm. Um, and it is, it is very claustrophobic when she's in the uh, yeah. the torture chamber or the lair. Yeah. Uh, and she uh, encounters an, an, older, yeah. an older gentleman. I thought he was a one bum note. <laughs> I didn't think the, the, the kind of... Yeah, so the psycho has like this jester figure um, who just basically does stand up. <laughs> While people are getting tortured, he's like the torture stand-up guy. I I, I didn't think he worked that well. It, it just added to that kind of weird, sort of sickening kind yeah. of carnivalist quality. Yeah, exactly. This, no, you, this, you did kind of work this in that whole way. this whole pilot. So yeah, what I want to know is, would you continue watching? I would, and just you know, it, you know, to even just you know the closing moments, the closing impressions, like. It had great images. So at the end, she kind of props up her boyfriend and she's drilled all the way through his holes to the back of his head. Yeah. So she props him up and you see the kind of moonlight coming through his eyes. Yeah. It, it, it is, it's very lyrical, I want to say, <laughs> at times for a show that is so no, violent. So it, it works. It works in the way that those, those short uh, horror stories of, mm. say, you know, H.P. Lovecraft yeah. work. It's like a short just, story. Yeah, a series yeah. of kind of really... Horrific tableaus, and interesting. The next, the next episode mm. is actually based on an HP Lovecraft short mm. story as well. So. so I think we could, we might even do this together, this series <laughs> together. Um, could be a good one. But look, it was, it was, it was great. And like, although I, I still am not entirely sure if you knew about the eye violence. I still, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering back in the day when you used to maybe you, you, you would get like bits from American Psycho and just email them to me randomly. So oh, I'm just because yeah. you knew I didn't didn't like the violence. I just, I just feel like there's something going on. I did when I saw that I was like questioning my motives. I'm questioning your motives. I, I feel like even even curse because I, I hadn't read anything. You sleep that, under the blanket of my protection. Yeah, yeah. Question about the right, right, right. I mean, I hadn't read anything around this, but I feel like even the most cursory reading would bring up that eye violence. So I don't know. I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure if you knew about it. But um, anyway, um, you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. So what have you got? What have you got cooking? Look, I, ha- I had I had a choice this week, which I might postpone. I'm going to go with what is maybe a bit of an obvious place to go from this week, but I still think it's interesting. I thought we'd do the other Michael Mann series, Luck. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've never. Seen I've it. never seen it. It's it's interesting. Da- it's David Milch wrote it. Uh, Michael Mann directed the pilot. It's about the world of horse racing. It stars Dustin Hoffman. Apparently they many animals because of animal cruelty. <laughs> many animals were harmed. Many animals were harmed. So we're not we're not we're obviously not endorsing that. We're not endorsing harming horses. Um, but it's one of those you know it's one of those shows from that I guess that roughly that golden era still like what 2012. Mm. I've just never seen mm. and I have no context for. So I thought having seen a Michael Mann pilot this week, yeah, it could be useful to do one for Archive Corner. Okay. Next week. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm, cool. I'm looking forward to it. I had another one in the bag, but we'll do that. We'll do that in two weeks' time. All right. Okay. Perfect. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>